tell all of the truth, but tell it slant, says Emily Dickinson. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies. That is to say, if you have a point to make, tell it from an angle. Go around the side. A curveball is more interesting than a fastball. Jesus seems to have adopted that uh, pedagogical strategy. He told his truths through stories. And so this summer we're looking at some of Jesus' patented yarns. This one might be the most famous story in the annals of human literature from Luke 10. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to the lawyer, what is written in the law? What do you read there? And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you've given the right answer. Do this and you'll live. But wanting to justify himself, the lawyer asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw the man, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan while traveling down this road, saw the man and was moved with pity. And the Samaritan went to him and bandaged his wounds and poured oil and wine on the wounds. And then he put the man on his own horse and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And then he took out $200 and gave it to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And when I come back, I will repay you whatever you spend which of these three, do you think, was a neighbor to the man who fell among thieves? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The other night, Kathy and Dudley were out of town, so my friends invited me to join them for dinner, and I got to sit next to my lawyer friend, Dana, and he was such a snappy raconteur that I remembered how much I love lawyers. Not everybody does. If you Google lawyer jokes, you will come up with 817,000 hits, and some of them are very cruel, and I'm not going to share them with you. But think of all the great lawyers in history and in literature. Clarence Darrow, Atticus Finch, Reese Witherspoon as L. Wood. <laughs> and I found, of course, that lawyers come in handy at several important junctures of life, like traffic court or divorce court or bankruptcy proceedings or when your teenager calls you from the police station at 3 o'clock in the morning. And at a dinner party, right? In my experience, lawyers, of course, they're well-educated. They've got at least seven years of education, and they have this, often this omnivorous curiosity, and they're sparkling conversationalists. They make their living by winning arguments, of course. And just when everyone else at the dinner table is ready to give in to tedious agreement, up pipes the lawyer 
who rescues the evening with that marvelous little conversation resuscitator, yes, but. <laughs> yes, but what about this? Yes, but what about that? One day, a lawyer decides to match, match wits with Jesus. It's no time for small talk. He jumps right into the deep end of the pool by asking Jesus a classically impossible question. Rabbi, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, like the college freshman who walks into the first day in the philosophy course, he asks, Professor, what is the meaning of life? Jesus answers his question with a question. Rabbi, what is the point of human life? The lawyer asks, and Jesus says, what do you read in the law? What do you interpret there? And the lawyer says, we must love God above all and our neighbors as ourselves. And Jesus says, bingo, give me a high five, A for the day. But this is not what the lawyer had in mind. He wanted to match wits with this hot shot new rabbi in town. And here Jesus has him parroting Sunday school lessons. Not to be outdone, the lawyer keeps it interesting with that great conversation resuscitator, yes, but. Yes, but, he asks, who is my neighbor? And this time, Jesus answers the lawyer's question, not with a question, but with one of his rustic little yarns. He says, there was a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among thieves. 17-mile hike downhill the whole way, literally and figuratively, because this stretch of road is notorious for brigands. He is accosted by a marauding gang who make Tony Soprano look like, well, like Rene Fleming. The inevitable happens. He gets mugged. They take his wallet, his ID, his credit cards, his cash, and even his clothing, leaving them leaving him bleeding and bruised and beaten on the ground. Half dead, says Jesus in his story. Unconscious, perhaps. A priest comes riding by, or to bring it a little closer to home, a Presbyterian minister. And he happens to see this sorry specimen of humanity lying there along the side of the road. And with that uncanny ability of the spiritually minded, completely to miss the point of religion, he takes a wide detour. The guy's half dead, but to the priest, he looks all dead. And in ancient Judaism, it was forbidden for priests to come into contact with corpses. He's on his way to an important meeting. If he touches this half-dead person, he's going to have to purify his clothing and his body with these inconvenient rituals, and he's going to miss his important meeting. A little later, a Levite comes by. Or perhaps to bring it once again closer to home, I should say uh, an Episcopalian vestryman. Because Levites were lay people, but they had significant religious responsibilities in and around the temple in ancient Judaism. So this is an Episcopalian vestryman who goes to the other side of the street just like the priest. He's going to be late for his meeting. Does this happen to you? You're tooling down I-94 at 70 miles an hour for an important meeting in the loop, and you see a lady along the side of the road, like William here maybe a few minutes ago, holding a baby in one hand and trying to change a tire on the other, and you say to yourself, why is this my problem? 
100 cars a minute are flying past this person. Why should I be the one to stop? Let this be someone else's inconvenience. Does that happen to you? And so anyway, with a rev of the engine and a screech of the tires, off go the Presbyterian preacher and the Episcopalian vestryman. And along comes, along comes, well, you fill in the blank. Jesus wants to shock his listeners, so he says, along comes a Samaritan. Jesus sounds like a famous insurance jingle, like a good neighbor. The Samaritan is there. <laughs> the Samaritans, of course, being almost but not quite like the Jews, were a constant source of irritation to their more fastidious neighbors to the south around Jerusalem. The Samaritans were mongrels of mixed blood, half Jewish and half knows God only knows what else. People of poor taste and sloppy religious sensibilities. It was like Draco Malfoy to Hermione Granger and Ron Weasley. All they see are mudbloods, half-bloods, mongrels. Around 200 B.C., one of the most respected sages in ancient Judaism talked of the Samaritans as those stupid people who live near Shechem. I'm not making this up. That's a direct quote. Those stupid people who live near Shechem. And so Jesus says, along comes a Samaritan. But you fill in your own blank. Along comes a Democrat. Along comes a Buckeye. Along comes a communist. The guy takes off his shirt, rips it into strips for bandages, and binds up the guy's wounds, piles him into his brand new red Volvo, getting his leather seats all bloody, and drives to the closest emergency room and hands the lady at the desk his credit card and says, I'll be back in a few days. I'll reckon up with you then. There are some special people in this world. You have them in your life. Maybe you are one. There are some special people in this world like that Samaritan who instinctively take responsibility for what is not inherently their own. They say, if you are in need, you are my priority. If you are wounded, you are mine for the healing. If you are broken, you are mine for the mending. I spend every August in Michigan's Leelanau Peninsula. And forgive Michigan people for doing this all the time, but we have two handy maps of Michigan at the end of our arms. So Detroit is over here, right? Grand Rapids is over here. This is Lake Michigan. Chicago is over here. I spend uh, August at the tip of the Leelanau Peninsula, the tip of Michigan's pinky finger. I am on the east side looking east over Grand Traverse Bay with the Shafts, the Lockharts, the Stanleys. And over on the other side, on the outside of Michigan's pinky, Chris is over there, right? Chris Fishman and Lester and Becky Knight. The Keens are over there, right? So last August, on August 2, Sunday afternoon, I'd finished preaching my sermon and I was on my porch reading the New York Times when suddenly the brightest, loudest thunderstorm I'd ever seen starts popping up over Lake Michigan, over Grand Traverse Bay. It deafened my ears and blinded my eyes, but it was over in 10 minutes, completely harmless, I thought. 
And when it was all over, I got a text from Joe, from Joe Forrest down here in Chicago. She says, are you all right? And I text back. I say, of course I am. Why wouldn't I be? And she says, there's this horrible storm up there. And it turns out that on the other side, on the outside of Michigan's pinky, there were 100 mile an hour winds that felt like a tornado and knocked over hundreds of 100 year old trees. It was a mess. It was the worst storm in living memory. 80-year-old people couldn't remember a storm that was worse than this. So the power goes out. It's going to be out for days, right? And so 100 people, 100 refugees take shelter in the town hall, which is a certified Red Cross shelter. And there's this restaurant in Glen Arbor, Michigan, on the outside of Michigan's pinky, right in the middle of Sleeping Bear Dunes National Lakeshore Park. It's called Blue, B-L-U, I guess because it overlooks the beautiful blue waters of Lake Michigan. And Paul Chamberlain is the chef and owner, and he has this refrigerator full of the finest food in Michigan. This is a haute cuisine kind of place. My wife keeps wanting me to take her there, but it's $40 an entree, so I never have yet. <laughs> so Paul has this refrigerator full of food. What do you do? Well, he rounds up his wait staff and takes all of this food over to town hall and whips up this lavish, lavish feast for 100 refugees. And after dinner, the refugees pass around a water pitcher and fill it with money as a gratuity for the wait staff, but they turn around and donate it right over to the Red Cross. There are some wonderful people in this world who instinctively take responsibility for what is not inherently their own. <laughs> where, where is that coming from? Is it, is it, it's the church across the I gotta talk to Joel. I, <laughs> I gotta talk to the rector over there. <laughs> okay, let's quit. One more thing. One last thing and then I'll quit. So, what do you think is the greatest American novel of all time? Is it Moby Dick, or Huck Finn, or The Great Gatsby, or The Grapes of Wrath? You know, the Russians have Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. We've got Twain and Melville and Steinbeck, Fitzgerald. I'll make my vote for The Grapes of Wrath. Do you remember Jim Casey in The Grapes of Wrath, this fallen preacher? He's left his Bible behind and he's picked up the bottle instead. But he's come across, he's come up with his own spiritual truths. His theology doesn't sound exactly like orthodoxy, but maybe he's on to something anyway. He says, anyways, I'll tell you one more thing I thought out, and from a preacher it's the most unreligious thing, and I can't be a preacher no more because I thought it and I believe it. I figured out about the Holy Spirit and that Jesus wrote. I figured, why do we got to hang it all on God and Jesus? Maybe, I figured, maybe it's all men and all women we love. Maybe that's the Holy Spirit. The spirit of all men and women. The whole shebang. Maybe there's just one big soul everybody's a part of. Now I sat there thinking it, and all of a sudden I knowed it, and I knowed it so down deep I could never unknow it. And then, of course, by the end of the story, the fallen preacher Jim Casey almost persuades us it's the most beautiful, if shocking, ending in all of American literature. 
This young mother rose asharn after famine, desertion, unemployment, and starvation. After watching her stillborn child float down the swollen river in a crate, gives the only thing she has left, the milk of her body. And she never asks if this guy is her neighbor. In 1998, a playwright named Frank Galati turned Mr. Steinbeck's novel into a play called The Grapes of Wrath. And it debuted here at Steppenwolf Theater in Chicago. It went to Broadway after Chicago. That's where I saw it. Gary Sinise played Tom Joad. Remember that? And when you see Rosa Sharn clutch, clutch that starving black man to her breast, as if he were her own child, you just can never forget. And when you read that story or see it on the stage, you get to thinking, maybe all men and all women got one big soul everybody's a part of. And we sat there thinking it, and all of a sudden we note it. We note it so down deep that we can never unknow it. I hope. I hope in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.